The issues that matter most, right here. The Drew Mariani Show. On Relevant Radio. This morning, the U.S. Supreme Court handing Donald Trump the gift of time. The justices agreeing to decide whether the Republican frontrunner should be immune from federal charges because his attempts to reverse the 2020 election happened while he was still in office. It's the Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Yeah, that is going to be a huge case. Big, big decision for President Trump. And raises questions, should he be given immunity? Uh, you're going to hear more of that report from the Today Show just in a moment or two. I'll let them break it down for you. But just want to welcome you. It's good to be back. As always, I try to give you a look at life, all that's unfolding in your world, maybe shining the light of our faith on it. That's how we should navigate this journey we call life. It makes things, I think, a little better, a little clearer. Right? It can be very confusing out there. We'll get into everything today from IVF to a uh, nine-month novena. Have you ever heard about this? N not a nine-day, not a nine-week. How about nine months of a novena? I'll be joined by a very high-ranking cardinal who's going to stop by and talk a little bit about who it's to and why at this moment in time he's calling the world to do this. If you're at work or you are working from home or you're looking for a job, stay with me. We'll get into some interesting conversation on the future of work. I'll also tell you who gets a bigger raise. All right. That and a whole lot more coming up today in the show, but it's good to be with you. Let's talk about the president for a moment, okay? Former President Donald Trump, uh, as you heard Mary Graham just say, bought himself some time yesterday when the Supreme Court announced that they've decided to hear his case. He's claiming absolute immunity from the law because he was the president. Uh, the case stems, of course, from what went down on January 6th and his actions when the uh, when House representatives met to count the electoral votes. Uh, of course, a uh, rioting mob entered the Capitol and they wanted to interrupt the proceedings. The charge that is leveled against the president is that he incited the people to do that. That his speech, his words, his actions, it gave... You know, the impetus before the vote. And uh, that's why he's being charged with uh, insurrection. He was negligent in not calling off the crowd. Now, if you watch that, I mean, everybody has very different views on it. You might have a different take. You might agree 1,000%. But, you know, there's a lot of time before the general election. So um, this is a huge case. This will be a huge, huge case that will impact the president and a number of other charges leveled against him. The Today Show did a report on this. I'll fill you in the latest regarding the court battles that he faces and now being taken up by the Supreme Court. We will never give up. We will never concede. In a one-page order, the high court saying it will hear arguments in the case the week of April 22nd. But with no firm date for its final ruling, the prospect of a federal criminal trial being completed before the November election becoming increasingly unrealistic. And if the Supreme Court rules in Mr. Trump's favor, the charges against him in Washington, D.C., wiped out completely. The stakes sky high for the former president who has cast the prosecution itself as election interference and special counsel Jack Smith's team, which has accused Mr. Trump of defrauding the government he once led. My office will seek a speedy trial so that our evidence can be tested in court. But the case has been beset by appeals on the immunity question, with lower courts finding Mr. Trump should not be shielded from prosecution. The Trump campaign seizing on the Supreme Court taking up the case as another fundraising opportunity, with the former president pressing his case on social media. 
And, and Trump's claiming uh, he has absolute immunity from criminal charges because he was still president. And of course, as you heard earlier, two lower courts have dismissed that claim. It will be really telling what the Supreme Court rules in this. Uh, that case, by the way, is just part of the 92 indictments he's facing. Um, 92 indictments. I say to my wife, if I was in his shoes, I don't know how I would do it. I, I couldn't do it. I mean, 92 indictments, and these are not, I mean, this is a real deal. There are real consequences for them. Um, we'll see what happens and how the Supreme Court uh, shakes out if they weigh in, in favor of him. Does the liberal media go crazy? Because, oh, he put those Supreme Court justices on. Uh, how will it shake out? I, I don't know. We might be surprised. I don't think the judges care who put them on. I think they're going to look at the law. Uh, there's another problem that Trump's facing, though. A state judge in Illinois has ordered his name to be removed from the primary ballot because he's supposedly engaged in insurrection. You'll love that. Some clever person came up with this, and all of a sudden we're seeing states yank Donald Trump from um, you know, from the ballots. And this was a state judge in Illinois, right? That decision's been appealed, although early voting has already started in the state. So it's crazy. It's just absolutely crazy. Let's have an election. Let's compare Joe Biden and Donald Trump's policies. Let's just, just look at the two candidates. And then you as, a, as an elector, as a person who's going to, as a citizen in this country, who's going to vote and elect the next president, vote based on who you think is best for the future of the country. Uh, I don't think it's good for democracy to remove candidates from the ballot. I just don't think it's, it's representative of where the heart and the mind of the people of this country are. Um, we're seeing changes. The big complaint, Donald Trump's too old. Joe Biden's too old. Senator Mitch McConnell, He's up there, too. Well, big news broke regarding McConnell. He's stepping down from his position at the end of November. So that's, you know, right around the election time. He's been um, he's been a Republican leader in the Senate for 17 years. The longest anyone has held that office. I, I was watching him last night. I saw a piece of an interview he did, and he talked about how Ronald Reagan would get his name wrong. Uh, let me share with you a little bit uh, more. Um, you might be able to relate to how Senator Mitch McConnell is feeling and his decision to step down. He kind of explains why. Listen. This will be my last term as Republican leader of the Senate. After a nearly 17-year run as the U.S. Senate's top Republican, Mitch McConnell on Wednesday announced he will step down from his leadership role in November. One of life's most underappreciated talents is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter. McConnell's announcement comes after a year in which his age and his health prompted speculation he might no longer be up to the job, a fact he appeared to acknowledge. I'm no longer the young man sitting in the back hoping colleagues would remember my name. It's time for the next generation of leadership. McConnell twice last summer froze up while making remarks in public raising questions about his ability to continue to carry out the duties of his high-powered job. Yeah, so, but you know what? I, I, good for him. That's what I say, right? And good for the country. I think change is always a good thing. And, and I say this about, you know, the president or Mitch McConnell or whatever party you're with. I mean, why not enjoy life, right? You've worked hard. You've contributed. You've made your mark. Why not enjoy the grandkids and maybe your grandkids, great grandkids, if you have them? I don't, I don't know how, you know, what their, 
these these people have. But enjoy your your spouse, your children. Enjoy life. You know, it's I, I don't know. They, Let's say a prayer for him, too. I think it's good. I think his health is a real factor in that as well. But sometimes when you get a little bit older, too, you think, well, what am I going to do if I retire? What's life going to be like? And we do know, and I've talked about this in the past, how life expectancy is shorter for those who retire kind of early. Um, He's been maligned, McConnell, by a lot of conservatives. They say he's a rhino, uh, Republican in name only. But uh, as a lot of Republican leaders noted on X today, he prevented Merrick Garland from becoming a justice on the Supreme Court. Could you imagine if Merrick Garland sat on the bench? Uh, we'd still have Roe v. Wade. Right? And who knows what other type of insanity we'd have in this country today. That was that was bold. Uh, he also um, shepherded Neil Gorsuch, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett through the nomination process uh, in in defiance of a very hostile Democratic minority. And, and, you know, Republicans are going to vote on a new leader after the election. That person is going to take office in January. So there will be some new blood. Meanwhile, I'm going to call you to pray for one big story that I saw. We'll talk about this a little bit later, too. Vladimir Putin, he gave his annual address. He gave his annual address to the, uh, the state of Russia. And again, I don't know whether it's a saber rattling. It could be. It could be just blustering, trying to send NATO a message to the rest of the world. Or we could be in very dangerous times where this man does not want to lose. Vladimir Putin, during his annual state of the address uh, uh, there in Russia, he, he threatened the world with nuclear war. That's a serious claim for any world leader with an arsenal to make. This sort of nuclear war is another reminder how much we need to pray and pray more than ever. Here's a little bit from DW News. I'll fill you in. Vladimir Putin has warned NATO countries they risk nuclear war if they send troops to Ukraine. The Russian leader has been delivering his annual State of the Nation address two weeks ahead of a presidential election that he is expected to win. Little to no opposition stands in his way. Putin told Russians in his speech that he would be stationing more soldiers in Russia's west close to new NATO members, Finland and Sweden. Now, Putin's nuclear warning comes after France's president refused to rule out the possibility of Western nations sending troops to Ukraine. This was later rejected by the U.S. and Germany. So uh, Putin says this. He says Western nations must realize that we also have weapons that can hit targets on their territory. All this really threatens a conflict with the use of nuclear weapons and the destruction of civilization. Don't they get that, he says, end of quote. That statement came after French President Emmanuel Macron said that the West must absolutely do whatever it takes to prevent Russia from winning in Ukraine. That that means putting boots on the ground, then boots on the ground. And that idea was quickly repudiated both by Britain and Germany and U.S. and other NATO countries. And and, and the comment also came after the... uh, European Commission president suggested that, you know, you know what we should do? We should take Russians' frozen assets and use them to fund the Ukrainian war effort. So, I mean, things are getting hot I, from a spiritual perspective. And this is just the opinion of Drew Mariani, no one else's. When I look at what's happening globally, when I hear some of these reported messages that are coming from different parts of the world, from mystics and reported apparitions of the Mother of God, and this urgent need to pray, 
I hope you're taking Our Lady up on it. Um, this is Lent. I hope you're praying and fasting and asking God for his mercy because we need it more than ever right now. Things can get really get ugly. The only thing that will mitigate that is prayer. You know, the only thing that can do that, pray your rosary and pray your chaplet. Go before the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Offer sacrifice. God's heart will be moved by that. There's no question about it. Senator Ron Johnson held a roundtable. A friend of mine sent me an email recently, and uh, there was this discussion recently of COVID-19 that included Dutch member uh, of the European Parliament, a guy named Rob Bruce, who's... uh, who warned against the World Health Organization's pandemic treaty that's going to be voted on in May. I I don't know if you heard this story or not. It's something I'll talk about maybe next week in greater detail to you. But that treaty would allow the World Health Organization to tell countries, to tell our country, what they have to do to prevent whatever the next pandemic is. Can you imagine the shutdowns, the mask wearing, the vaccinations you might have to get? Can you imagine the things that they say, this is what you got to do? So you might wonder if there's more than... You know, that meets the eye when it comes to the WHO pandemic treaty. CBN News might confirm some of your suspicions in this investigative report. Listen. Given his concern, Tedros wants countries worldwide to sign a legally binding agreement full of rules and regulations, giving the WHO expanded authority. This 32-page document is the most recent draft of the so-called pandemic treaty that the World Health Organization promotes as a way for poorer countries to receive the same level of health care as wealthier ones. Some Capitol Hill lawmakers have major concerns about this push, including the WHO's handling of China's role at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. Others charge it would use U.S. tax dollars to fund certain health policies worldwide. You know, WHO has lost its way. I used to ask them, I've been here 44 years, year in and year out, where do you stand on abortion? They'd say, agnostic, we don't do anything on it. And now they have become the most aggressive promoters of abortion in the world. They have... A, and, and, and is embedded in this treaty. The Family Research Council's Tony Perkins calls the treaty a progressive power grab. The draft agreement is first and foremost a global, political, economic, and social manifesto. Yeah, and again, I, you know, I think it should give everybody pause. Uh, Rob Roos, again, who's a Dutch member of the European Parliament, uh, he became known, I don't know if you remember that name or not, uh, after he asked the head of Pfizer if they had tested the vaccine for preventing transmission before it was brought to the market. And uh, she admitted that, well, no, not really. And then Roos came out and warned that with the treaty under discussion, he said this, I'll quote him. He says, the, uh, the World Health Organization could then, in practice, impose lockdowns. They can force medical interventions and detailed medical protocols all on the countries that signed the treaty. And that would be the U.S. amongst a number of others. So, I, again, I think caution is needed. Uh, Eric Ebner is going to be joining me. I want to get to him on another story. My colleague, former colleague, John John uh, Harper, sent me a, an email about a cyber attack. I don't know if you heard this uh, either. This is so weird. We're, we're seeing more attacks on hospitals and health care. Uh, we had that attack also, of course, on communication. Last week, some people who who went to fill prescriptions to the pharmacies, couldn't get them. Their insurance company, uh, Change Healthcare, which is part of United Health uh, Optum subsidiary, they've been hacked. And uh, they were attacked with ransomware. 
at first, United Health said, oh, the disruption was called by a, a nation state actor. In other words, a country like China or Russia or North Korea. But then it revealed that it was ransomware called Black Cat. 12 News in Phoenix will tell you about this attack. Listen. This cyber attack hit a company that operates under the mammoth insurance company, United Health. Teaching the next generation of cybersecurity engineers, Mizan Rahman at Chandler Gilbert Community College says this latest cyber attack is part of an ongoing invisible war against U.S. companies. We need a lot of more people because of the, all the technologies coming and especially all the devices are growing. According to the SEC, this attack was likely by a foreign country that paid rogue hackers. Rahman says the most common culprits are China and Russia. They do it to obtain intellectual property or to just cause havoc. No word yet on who's suspected of this attack. The American Hospital Association says the most immediate consequence is a delay in some prescriptions at hospitals and pharmacies. They also warn surgeries and procedures could be delayed. Meanwhile, Rahman says companies need more IT pros with cyber skills to keep such attacks at bay. You know, we're seeing these attacks on everything from casinos, like operators like MGM and, and, and Caesar Entertainment, to uh, public infrastructure and supply chains. Uh, those are huge targets. Can you imagine if your city's water supply was taken over? What would you do with the water? What if the sewer didn't work? What about transportation that we rely on for food and other necessities? All of those are connected to the Internet in one way or, no, you know, one way or another, and they could be taken over. I'm joined right now by Eric Ebner. He's Chief Technology Officer of 360 Security Services in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find him at 360security.services. Eric, good to have you back with me. Good afternoon. Hey, it's great to be back. Good afternoon, and uh, God bless. God bless you. I, boy, a lot going on here, both on the no international kidding. scene, but, you know, a big part of, of I think, future war, warfare is, of course, going to be cyber. I mean, it's going to be huge. And then you see, you know, bad actors, you know, using malware to hijack hospital systems. A lot of hospitals pay because they need that information. United Health got hacked with ransomware. Uh, to me, that's, that's very disturbing because you think about how many medical records a company at large has. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. Is ransomware really a hack, or is that a little bit different? How, how do you define these things? And maybe pull out, give me your big picture. What are you seeing? Yeah, yeah. So this particular one is even a little bit more insidious because it's ransomware as a service, right? Mm-hmm. Think of like uh, how you're getting your uh, Microsoft Word and Teams from Microsoft. You right. pay every every month a little bit, you know, and they give you access to it. Same concept, right? You're you're paying somebody who's developed the the ransomware software to use it each month and to attack the people that you want to. You don't have to maintain it. You don't have to have all the, the programming and development smarts to, to code this stuff. Someone else is doing that for you. You're just going out, installing it, attacking people, taking money, rinse and repeat. Wow. So how vulnerable are companies like United Health and the hundreds of other really large companies uh, in our country to being hacked. And, and who knows? I don't know whether there's already embedded bugs or, you know, hacks uh, on the standby by, by, you know, state or you know, international mm-hmm. actors that if we get into a conflict with Taiwan or Iran or some other place like that, they'll, they'll shut those things down. Well, there's a couple, there's a couple ways to look at this. Um, and there, there's some, there's some sayings that exist in our industry. One, the good guys have to be right every time the bad guys have to be right once. Yep. Right. And, and the other side with, with cybersecurity, 
just like your health, it's a journey, not a destination. You don't suddenly wake up one day and you're like, you know what? I'm as healthy as I'm going to be. I'm never going to get sick again. You know, I don't have to worry about cancer. Nope. Every day you have to do things to maintain your health. Every day you've got to do things to maintain your cybersecurity for your organization. Look at uh, the, the recent hack at Microsoft that caused uh, some very sensitive information to be released, and it was because they had set up an account in testing and yeah. didn't get to, didn't get deleted, didn't get removed, didn't it got overlooked, right? The destination kind of a thing. Oh, we'll deal with this maybe tomorrow. Somehow, some way, that got overlooked, just like not having a physical done, not getting uh, your blood screened, your, your colon screened, et cetera, all yeah. these different things, right? Uh, organizations that stay cyber secure have a repeatable, robust process that goes and checks and makes sure everything is, is secure day to day to day. Hey, Eric, you know, we're, we're in a totally new world. You know, it's not just about, you know, hacking in through some back door, tricking somebody to open an email. Um, attackers are now leveraging AI to enhance mm -hmm. their, their cyber attacks, you know, writing malicious code and all sorts of other things. In what way are, um, in what way is AI going to enhance more of these, these cyber attacks and can we employ it on the inverse, maybe to, to protect us from these things? Uh, you know, you, you look at the number one way that I think it's being successfully used uh, is in creating, you go back in time, the Nigerian prince email, right? <laughs> yeah. the, the language, the grammar, everything, yeah. spelling was just horrible. You look at it, you'd be like, mm -hmm. yeah. yep, that's not legit, right? Well, now you can take AI and you can feed in. If I wanted to target uh, target you, I could feed in your social. I could feed in the, the, the conversations you have during your show. I could feed in all these different things, right, and come back with something that you are going to think is legit and click on, right, um, because it is able to look at that big swath of data and say, this is how it needs to be written. This is how it needs to be done. Um, the inverse of that, when you look at the protection side of things, I think we're we're heading down a positive direction where, yeah, it can help us, but it comes back down to the basics. It comes back down to, you know, the the, the physical security analogy where the security guard goes out and does random patrols, making sure the doors are locked, the windows are locked, there's no one lurking in the parking lot. Those are the things that still are, are winning on a on a repeatable basis against these threats. My guest today is Eric Ebner. And Eric, I only have a moment or two. What advice would you give to uh, those who are running businesses right now to make sure that they, they, you know, keep safe? Uh, are there protocols or things you would suggest, resources you want to drive them to? Because it's not just major companies. I mean, a lot of those are targeted, like I said, hospitals. Mid-sized, yeah. small businesses, too, really are vulnerable. No, they are. Uh, they have, the, they have the, the most to lose, right? Uh, them them getting breached is, is much more damageable than, you know, damaging to them than a multinational corporation that, you know, money comes in the door. They have basically a tree in the backyard that they print money off of. Right. Uh, find a partner who's knowledgeable that you can trust. Yeah. Uh, find a partner that has a defense in depth solution that can be put in place to protect you. That's what the big guys do. And they're not that expensive. They're, 
they're not that expensive. Uh, they, they require somebody who's smart to, uh, to take care of it for you, but give that to somebody else to worry about because you didn't go into business to be a cybersecurity person. Okay. You went into business to, Amen. you know, yeah. Well, good. Hey, Eric, I'll leave it right there because I'm up against the clock. But thanks for making time for no us. Worries. I always appreciate hey, you stopping by. Uh, the best address for you, though, right? Uh, 360security.services? Yep, 360security.services. Uh, we take care of things on the physical and the cybersecurity side. We're all about risk management for our clients. Yeah. And Eric is the uh, CTO there, the Chief Technology Officer. Uh, Eric, thanks. Appreciate it again. I've got to take a short pause. When I come back, we're going to change gears. There's been a lot of talk about uh, in vitro fertilization and, and you know how that's going to ripple out, right? Have the Dems jumped on that theme? Is it going to be a talking point during the upcoming elections? Well, Florida lawmakers are postponing a fetal personhill bill after that Alabama ruling. Also, one other headline you should maybe hear about the another Republican senator uh, scuttles uh, <laughs> the IVF bill. Um, senator uh, uh, you know, Duckworth, uh, Tammy Duckworth, a Democrat in Illinois, said it would create a right to access in vitro fertilization and surrogacy bill. So she blocked the Senate's passage of that bill. And I'll, I'll fill you in on what she's saying, tell you much more. I mean, you know what I want to talk about? Really, I want to talk about the morality of in vitro fertilization. What does the te the church teach? And, uh, you know, what do you ultimately need to know? Uh, I saw a, um, a stat. Oh, gosh, I don't know where it went here. If I can find it, I'll share with you. How many children die as a result of, uh, of in vitro? Um, it's, it's pretty amazing how many children get discarded and how many children's lives are lost as a result of this. So, Oh, here it is. IVF kills 30 children for every one that survives. That's stunning. Terrible is really what it is. Let's talk about it. I'll fill you in on the church's teaching on that when I return. Your news. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Your news now. IVF is not about babies. IVF is about on-demand designer babies shipped worldwide. What is the rule for children's rights? There is one rule. The rule is adults do hard things for kids. If you are forcing a child to sacrifice for you, you are violating the rights of the child, and that is where every adult should stand in the way. One of the most painful things in a child's life is if they've lost their mom or dad. Surrogacy splices what should be one woman, a mother, into three purchasable and optional women. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Yeah, those are um, really important truths surrounding IVF and that whole conversation. That was uh, Katie Faust uh, on the Lila Rose podcast. We'll play a little bit more. They've had an interesting exchange I want to share with you, but uh, let me bring up the speed of what's happening. I thought we'd talk about this. You know, I've had, I've dressed in vitro fertilization in the past, IVF, and um, I know there's Many of you who are listening that had children or maybe grandkids because some of you loved used in vitro fertilization, and that's a sacred life. It has dignity. Um, I thought we'd take a look at some of the confusion over IVF. And part of this conversation, and I, I you know, I, I touched on it briefly last week, but I, I there's so much reporting on it. I thought maybe we'd we dive in it. So if you want to join me, the number's triple eight. 914-9149. Feel free to ask your questions or share your own experience, whether you agree or disagree. Uh, the Alabama Supreme Court last week, uh, they came out with a decision and it allowed a negligence lawsuit against a fertility clinic to go th forward. And it brought a lot of hand-wringing, uh, whether 
not this is going to impact in vitro fertilization or IVF. Apparently, uh, what happened was there was a, I think it was a wandering patient. They, they went into a prohibited area and they knocked over some trays. And on these trays, they had these frozen embryos. And a couple of those children were lost. And so the family sued, you know, over negligence. The hospital contended that, look, Alabama, Alabama law didn't protect unborn children outside the womb, but court said, well, it did, actually. And you can hear that conversation. I had uh, Ed Whalen on my program on the legal ramifications of that uh, in our podcast. You can go back and check that out. I also spoke, I think, with Mary Fiorito uh, last Wednesday. So just do a quick search for it. You'll find great conversations on it. But uh, this is raising a lot of questions about the morality. That's what I want to talk about. Not the legality, but the morality of IVF. When it first came out in 1978, uh, we had the birth of uh, Louise Brown in, in the UK. The, the Catholic Church was very quick to condemn it. But, you know, 45 years ago, by almost a half a century now, and it's kind of fallen off of Catholics' radar screens. And a lot of Catholics have just come to assume that, you know, it's a good thing. It it helps couples have babies. So church has got to be okay with that, right? Uh, some of you might be surprised to find out that is not the case. You know, when, when uh, Pope St. Paul VI, he wrote Humanae Vitae back in '68. What did everybody focus on? They focused on the fact that it prohibited artificial contraception. He was so prescient. He was so prophetic in what he saw and what he wrote. He also, at the very same time, he condemned any fertility method that separated fertility from the marital embrace. And here to go through all this with us right now, and feel free to join me, is Father Tapaholczyk. He is uh, one of the leading ethicists in our country. He's a senior ethicist at the National Catholic Bioethics Center. He writes a column you might want to check out called Making Sense Out of Bioethics. It appears in diocesan papers across the country. Just go to his website. You can go to fathertad.com or ncbcenter.org. That's his other website. Hey, Father, good to have you back. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Drew. Good to join you. Boy, this story has really been growing legs, hasn't it? It has. I heard about it last Wednesday or Tuesday when it broke, and we reported on it on Wednesday, and then there have been a, just a flurry of people addressing, you know, the morality of all this. So I thought it'd be good to do a one-on-one today. You know, let's walk people through it. Can you give us the details while, of course, remaining family-friendly, um, you know, what IVF uh, ultimately entails? Yes, I mean... Let me just, you know, preface the remarks a little bit by saying uh, I've been amazed by just watching the evening news four days in a row, NBC Nightly News. And this story was near the top of the roster every single night, four nights in a row. So I said to myself, this is incredible. I mean, you know, perhaps the most telling thing about the reaction to the Alabama Supreme Court decision is just how widespread the outrage seems to be. And, you know, the reason for this, I believe, touches exactly on what we're going to be looking at, the whole moral question, and the fact that, you know, I think it was George Orwell, right, who said, in a time of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Mm. And I think that's really, you know, what the court did here. They stated the truth about human beings at the earliest stage of their existence and said, look, logic here demands that we treat them the same way we treat other uh, young individuals. They're just very young, very vulnerable. So, you know, I'm really grateful that this story has opened up a lot of discussion around something that has, for the most part, I think not gotten much uh, airtime. It's the kind of thing, as you implied in the opener, 
people have gotten used to it. They've gotten accustomed to it. It's sort of gone by the wayside and everybody thought, oh, that's past history. And this, you know, offers us the opportunity to really look at a fundamental kind of injustice that is going on in pretty much every major city in our country, the manufacturing of human beings, the production of human beings in glassware. And of course, that's never where any of us are entitled to be brought into existence. We should be loved into existence through that body-to-body self-giving of husband and wife. That loving embrace is the only way to respect our origins. So I think this is you know, the core issue. And I think a lot of people, of course, understand intuitively, oh, there's some other collateral damage here that we should all be very worried about, which is, for example, the fact that you typically create extra embryos. And these embryos tend to be frozen if they're not implanted. And so many families have children on ice. And this is a hugely awkward situation that they realize later sometimes that, you know, they wish they hadn't gone down that path. Uh, And, you know, it also involves the kind of violation of our sexuality here. The the treatments for the man and the woman, uh, these steps involve problematic steps to basically hand over your sex cells so that somebody who you pay a fee to will produce your children for you. So these are, you know, some of in outline, some of the key moral issues that the church from the beginning has emphasized. This is dehumanizing. It's not the way that uh, human life should be brought into the world. And we owe it to our own children to make sure that they're protected from coming into the world in this fashion. So often you'll have in vitro fertilization babies born. And then when they're born, they have to think about, well, gee, do I have brothers and sisters who either were thrown away during the process or who are left behind? in the cryogenic storage units at these different fertility clinics. So, you know, very, um, very serious concerns raised here. And uh, I'm grateful at least yeah. that this story has grown legs in the way that it has. Well, let's talk about some of these things in, in a little bit of greater detail so people can understand it. Um, one, IVF is morally unacceptable, right? So if somebody thinking about it, they should not do this, right? Um, and, right, and, right. That's absolutely the case. And I think what's important even is to go a little more specific and say, as the church does, that yeah. this represents something that you should never do. In right. other words, sometimes people think, well, it seems like there should right. be some kind of circumstances where this would be okay. You know, if the couple really can't get pregnant any other way, then yeah. shouldn't this be? And at the end of the day, this is what we call an intrinsic evil. It is always wrong, regardless of what your motivations, good as those may be, are. It's an action that always crosses an objective moral line. So, yes, that would be the short answer to your question. So uh, if you want to join us, the number here is 888-914-9149. Feel free to ask your questions, get your clarity. Call today be a good day for us to explore in vitro fertilization so you better understand it. Maybe you can communicate better to those you love about it as well. Maggie, you had a thought on this. Yeah, you know, I I know infertility plagues a lot of young couples today, um, but I I really think that the the concept of adoption just keeps getting pushed farther Mm -hmm. and farther to the wayside when these these very popular um, technologies keep getting talked about, especially by celebrities. Um, 
you know, with adoption, the child is the client and all of the parents are being vetted to extreme lengths uh, so that each child is being put in a loving and safe home. With IVF, it's the complete opposite. The parents are the client and these big reproductive technologies will go to whatever length um, and whatever cost to make sure that these parents are getting what they want, quote unquote, no matter how many human lives they'll discard in, in the process. Yeah, Maggie, I think that's spot on. Uh, really, the customer is always right in IVF and children are pawns who are being utilized really throughout this process and you know, suffering grave injustices along the way. So that, that's entirely correct. And in a, in a good adoption protocol, I, I mean, you're right, the child is sort of the centerpiece. And we're saying, all right, what are we going to do here to get a family for this child who needs to be adopted that's the best family we can find? And we're going to vet them in this way, vet them in that way. Absolutely. So that's, that should be always our approach, that the child, especially because of his or her vulnerability, should be front and center, really, of uh, the way we approach these questions. They're not an afterthought. They're not some kind of trophy. They're not some kind of possession. They're not a right Amen. that anybody can lay claim to. I think that's key to, you know, clarify. Yeah, my guest today, Father Tapa Holchak. He hails from the National Catholic Bioethics Center. He's an ethicist. If you want to join us on this, or you need clarity, or you agree or disagree, feel free to pull up a chair. We have maybe another 10 minutes with him or so. Uh, I'll go to the phones when I return. You can get in now. The number is 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. Exploring in vitro fertilization and how the Catholic Church views it. That and more when we return. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. The Chaplet of Divine Mercy. Live. Coming up. You're listening to The Drew Mariani Show. On Relevant Radio. Thanks for joining me. Let's uh, we'll pray in ten minutes, but let's let's explore a little bit more an issue that I think a lot of people maybe don't fully comprehend. It looks like a real good, and that's in vitro fertilization. Uh, the church views it as morally unacceptable, and there's a number of reasons why. Um, it all stems from the church's teaching on the sanctity of human life and the nature of marriage and sexual ethics. Uh, the church teaches that the uh, generation of new life should be intimately linked to the marital act between a husband and a, and a wife, and that IVF separates that procreative act from that physical union. Father Paulchek, who joins me from the National Catholic Bioethics Center, pointed out another big aspect of this we haven't talked about, that there are multiple embryos that are often created, not of all which will be implanted, and many of them are destroyed or frozen uh, or used for research. Uh, so you could see the the issues that arise from that. And then the other aspect, and we could probably talk an hour on this issue, is the implication of certain characteristics. People choose, you know, I want a boy, I want a girl, I, I want these qualities. Selective reduction, you know, is morally problematic. It's akin to eugenics, where only certain embryos are deemed fit to be chosen. Um, and then, of course, IVF, um, you know, when we disregard the the link between um, 
well, intimacy, both unitive and procreative. Uh, that's what marriage is supposed to be all about. and has implications, I think, for this as well. My guest, Father Tab Holtrick. Father, we'll grab a few calls for you quickly here. But before I do, two other aspects I want to hit on that I didn't touch. One, the cost. It's, it's not inexpensive to do this. And two, there's confusion if someone is created and develops in a test tube, how they're ultimately viewed. But, but your thoughts on those two issues. Yeah, I think uh, the financial piece is important to acknowledge that part of the pushback that we're seeing here that's so outspoken, I think, is because we are now dealing with a multi-billion dollar industry. And once you have that much money at play, it really gets hard to see the moral and ethical lines with clarity. So there's strong pushback. I suspect this Alabama Supreme Court decision is going to you know, undergo a lot of tweaking following pressure from the industry, from the infertility industry. So that's one sad component of this. The other piece that you mentioned about, you know, a lot of times people say, well, look, it's an embryo, it's in glassware, it's in a test tube. I mean, that's not really a human being. That, that location isn't the right location. And it's like, well, look, human beings can be in some very unusual locations, but they're still human beings and they will require all kinds of support uh, when they're in those other locations. I mean, for example, if you have a human being that's underwater, they'll need scuba right. equipment, you know, or humans in the Arctic, they need heating. Right. Uh, and so humans, when they're very small and vulnerable, they may need to be frozen in order to be protected and preserved because we're not able to grow them, you know, for uh, an extended right. period while they're in the glassware. But they're still human. They're just as human as those yeah. individuals underwater or right. uh, in the Arctic. So we got a board full of telephone calls. I want to grab as many calls as we can for you, Father. Dr. Robert from Dayton, Ohio, is on the line. He's a physician. Hey, Doc, good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you. Um, I, uh, the reason I called is I wanted to uh, ask your guest a question. Uh, my, one of my best, my best friend who is uh, in medical school, who is now still my best friend, we graduated in 1985. He is the, just the recent past um, president of the Ohio Medical Association, not the board, but the medical association. And he and his wife are childless, and they tried the normal, obviously human uh, man to woman uh, to try to get pregnant, and they did tests on both of them. They found nothing wrong with eggs or sperm, and. And so they, they went to uh, in vitro, and they did four in vitro tries and still did not get pregnant. And, I, and that's been the most recent. It's been about a year. And uh, I, I'm trying to wonder, I'm asking, what I'm doing is asking a question. What, how do I broach the topic mm. of, of the, what's the humanity of doing the in vitro, and, and do they think it's right? And is it my choice? Is it my uh, responsibility at all to ask them that question. All right. Now that's an excellent question. And I, I would answer it this way. I would say, because at the beginning you said, this is your best friend. You've known him for a long time. You care for him as a friend. I do think that on some, in some fashion, this should be part of what you discuss with him. I also say this to families, you know, if your brother or your sister has gotten married and they're just telling you that they're going to go do IVF, it's very important that you broach the topic with them. You have a closeness to them 
that yes, I believe it does imply a responsibility. Now, you have to do this carefully. You have to do it with with love and attention, but uh, it is important that we have the courage of our convictions to open a dialogue with people who we're close to, because we do care for them. And at the end of the day, if they go down this path, it's a form of hurting themselves because whenever we do moral wrongs, we do hurt ourselves. So it's, you know, motivated See, I, out of that genuine interest. And I'm trying to figure out how do I approach uh, saying that I think that this is wrong, but I'm not married and I don't have children and I'm not an OBGYN. Uh, and I have, he's been, they've been trying and trying to, they love each other very much. They've been married for 20 years and, mm-hmm. and, uh, it's tough. I, and I just don't know if yeah, I'm not sure our that friendship by broaching the topic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I, I'm not sure there's a simple way to do this. You're sort of asking, yeah. you know, is there a technique and approach that will always work? And I'm afraid oh, there's that's not. That's a good idea. This is something. Yeah, I mean, it's something that depends on uh, your relationship to him and the kinds of conversations you've had in the past. What, so, what about this talking point too? You know, you can ask them are you pro-life? And if they say, yeah, of course, we respect all life from the moment of conception through natural death, then you can raise the question about all these oh. other embryos. What will happen the to them? The thing what? I forgot to tell you is he will not do abortions. Well, then, then what you got to... Since he's Catholic. So that, 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 that's your linchpin. Then bring it out and say, what's going to happen with these embryos? Will they be discarded, destroyed, used for research? Will they remain frozen forever? So there's a real ethical concern in that area. And, and Father Paholczyk, I'll let you follow up on that point, and we'll grab another call. Dr. Robert, thank you. Do uh, uh, you want to expand on that, Father? Yeah, I mean, I think your suggestion is one that's definitely worth trying. You know, are you pro-life? Uh, you know, or even something like, sitting down with the person and saying, can you tell me why you you did IVF or what were the right. steps involved? Because sometimes people aren't even aware of the right. steps. And as they're telling it to you, then it becomes possible to say, oh, you yeah. know, did you realize they probably froze several? And did, you know, and, and use that as kind of a launch point into further uh, yeah. dialogue with them. Hey, Dr. Robert and Dayton, thanks for your call. I appreciate it. I'll say a prayer for you. Uh, you God's going to use you in a powerful way. He will. I mean, you have an opportunity really to evangelize. So pray that the Holy Spirit gives you the right words. Reba is in uh, Roseville, California. Hi, Reba. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, Drew. Good afternoon, Father. Thanks for taking my call. Hey, I just wanted to share my story real quick um, for encouragement to others. Uh, So my husband and I met later in life. We got married. I was 34. We knew that we wanted kids. We started uh, trying to start our family pretty early on, but it didn't happen right away. Um, we went to a fertility clinic just to check my hormone levels and to see if there was a medical reason. At that time, they were kind of suggesting IVF, and we were both, uh, you know, definitely against that. Um, we tried naturally for a while. It didn't work. We gave up, and then three months later, it happened naturally. Wow. So wow. we gave yeah, birth Reba, to a, a healthy girl. But it gets yeah, better. No, go ahead, Reba. Finish your thought. Go ahead. So um, I had my first child at 36. 
And then uh, a year after she was born, we were trying again, tried for a year. It still didn't happen. We went back to the fertility clinic just to see if my hormones were worse, better, the same. At that point, they said, you should def- if you want a second child, you should definitely be doing IVF, and you might even start considering an egg donor. I walked out of there in tears. My husband and I looked at each other and said, no way, no how. We gave it up to God. We said we are happy with one child if that is our blessing. Uh, three months later, we were pregnant naturally. Wow, praise God. Um, I love and it. And then it gets better. It gets better. So I had my second child at 39, healthy oh. baby boy. Um, three years later, we figured I was an old mare out to pasture. My eggs were done. Yep. No more kids for us. And we got pregnant again naturally by the grace of God. And that's Baby it. number three. Right, Reba, that's it. God's the author of life. He could give it to Sarah. He can give it to you. He can give it to anyone. We have to be faithful to him in all things. My thanks to Father Todd Paholcek, senior ethicist at the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Check him out at his website, fathertad.com, or go to ncbcenter.org.